Good morning, everybody. Uh, great to see those who are visiting with us this morning. Um, we're going to be doing a bit of an unusual lesson this morning. Um, if you want to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6, which won't be the starting place, it'll be where we'll get eventually. Uh, but you notice, just in terms of the title of the lesson, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, or do you not know? If you look at verse 15, do you not know? Verse 16, or do you not know? Verse 19, or do you not know? You know, that there are some truths about our salvation and our relationship with God that are very easy to neglect, um, ignore, not recognize, or really just not value to the point where even if we mentally maybe understand it on some level or agree with it as like a fact of information, we may end up proving that we don't really understand it by the way that we behave or the attitude we may have, that ultimately, scripturally, the way that we acknowledge truth or really the truth of how we acknowledge a truth is seen most clearly in how we respond to that truth and what we do with it, right? So what I'm going to be focusing on in this lesson is an aspect of our salvation that in the New Testament is incredibly important and is at the foundation of what motivates a complete and undivided devotion to the Lord, humility, conviction, the most profound possible love for him and adoration for what he's done, and that is that we are temples of the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. It's not something that I think about enough. It's not something that's in my language like it ought to be. Um, it remains something that I think I, I really don't comprehend in an appropriate manner with the significance given to it in the New Testament and by Jesus and the apostles. Um, so it's something that I need to understand better. And I think that we all would do well to understand better. Um, it's something that in the world around us, I think is safe to say is very misunderstood. Um, there's things that the world says that they associate with the spirit that are either presumptuous in their connection to the scripture or outright contradictory to what the Bible defines as what it really means to have the Spirit and be given the Spirit. Um, and that really pushes a need to define things biblically. But I think we can also, maybe in a more subtle way, not see ways that we misapply or misunderstand what this means. So I'll just kind of spoil this before we get into the lesson too much. Um, you may have noticed from the scripture reading that to be filled with the Spirit or to be a temple of the Spirit has nothing to do with your weight, your physical wellness, your fitness, or what you eat. Um, it also doesn't, do, it doesn't have anything to do here with whether or not you get tattoos on your body. Those are things that people may say and may affirm very confidently. But really, when we look at 1 Corinthians, and if you were to look in other places, those are not the applications that you see are related to this great truth that God has given us. So we want to define it scripturally, and I think what you'll find is the Spirit um, dwelling in us and us being temples of the Spirit. There's really two ways we're going to look at this. Chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, that being made a temple of the Spirit first has to do with our attitude. And so it should impact the way that we think, our worldview, our attitude in general. And in 1 Corinthians 6, being filled with the Spirit or being made a temple of the Spirit um, should change the way we use our body and the way that we view our body. 
And I think that especially relates specifically to sexual sin and sexual purity. So we'll look at that when we get there. So we're going to be starting in chapter 3, 16, and 17 with the spirit and our attitude. Um, And the idea is if I'm a temple of the spirit, then my attitude and ambitions ought to reflect that reality. And before we read this, I want to kind of give an introduction to the Corinthian church, right? So the Corinthians were a total mess here. Like their relationships, their attitudes, their view of doctrine, their practices as a local church, just it's like everything had collapsed (laughs) since the Apostle Paul was among them. He had spent a year and a half investing in the church here, the Apostle Paul. And he'll reference the fact that if you look back in verse 10, according to the grace of God, which is given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So Paul knows, and I don't think this is said in arrogance, but said to help you know, expound on the point he's making, the argument he's making, that the Corinthians were given the right foundation. They were given the right example, the right teaching, but something has gone catastrophically wrong in the current condition that the Corinthians are in. And the first four chapters, before Paul deals with the immorality, because there is incredible sexual immorality being practiced and tolerated in the church, there are doctrinal problems in the Corinthian church. You have some people who are denying the resurrection. You have people who have not been practicing the Lord's Supper the way that it was intended or delivered. You have people being arrogant with spiritual gifts. You have brethren who are not being mindful of each other's consciences. You have people participating in idolatrous feasts. Brethren are taking each other to court. And the list, the list goes on, right? So it's just, it's a disaster. But in the first four chapters, before Paul gets into anything beyond their attitude, this is where he begins. And the first time he brings up in verse 16 and 17 that them being a temple has a significance, it is in the attitude, fundamentally, that they ought to have. So I want to start in verse 10 again, um, rather verse 9, and we're going to read through verse 17 to kind of get the context here. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 17. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. And kind of remember that terminology, God's building. According to the grace of God which is given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if, now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will, will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So again, if I am a temple of the Spirit then my attitude and ambitions ought to reflect that reality. So in the context here, again, Paul is describing things that are more intangible and using illustrations to try to help us grasp these intangible things and assign a greater sense of reality to them. 
And I think here it's the idea of God building a structure. And there are materials that we can use to help build this structure. So he brings up in verse 12, there's gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Does anyone remember what kind of materials were used to build Solomon's temple? Was it hay or was it straw? No, it was gold, silver, there was wood, and then the wood would be overlaid with gold, so you actually usually wouldn't even see the wood. Um, but especially if you're thinking about it as needing to withstand fire, inevitably, right? So Paul had laid a spiritual foundation. And what the Corinthians were doing is they had built on that foundation with materials that could not withstand the fire because they were materials that were entirely inconsistent with what they were given as a foundation. And so if you think about Paul's letter and things he was going to write to them as think about like the fire, they were going to need to make dramatic corrections on every level, corrections in their relationship, corrections with morality, corrections with doctrine, corrections in the way they think about each other and communicate together and relate to one another. And so it was going to be difficult to make those corrections, but it was needed to replace the worldly materials with spiritual materials because the Corinthians were thinking in a worldly way and Paul was going to be giving them, be giving them spiritual material to properly replace and renovate the mistakes they've made with strife, jealousy, division, and sinful things that were in the midst of the congregation. Look at chapter 2, 12 through 13. So Paul is making an argument through chapter 4, from chapter 1 to chapter 4. So what we're going to do initially here is kind of like trace his argument back to the beginning to have a clear understanding of what his ultimate point is, again, in bringing up them being a temple of the Spirit and us being a temple of the Spirit. So chapter 2, 12 through chapter 3, verse 3. And remember, the main point here is the Spirit impacts our attitude fundamentally. Chapter 2, verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. And I think here he's speaking primarily about apostles delivering divine revelation so verse 13, which things we, again, Paul as an apostle, also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. And the idea of appraisal is kind of like, understanding the value of a thing. Again, this goes beyond just intellectually, do I accept this information as true or not? It, it's a much broader recognition of the value, right? He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised, but he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind, the attitude of Christ. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh, as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. Your translation might say carnal. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? 
The idea that Paul is describing is in Christ, what God has done, he's given us a new identity and that we are spiritual beings, not worldly beings, right? And so as spiritual beings, we need to be spiritually minded. And he brings up in verse three, if there's strife and jealousy among you, well, that just proves that you're still walking and living like mere men. And so this internal, intangible reality that can seem like it has no you know, form to it, this idea that the spirit dwells in us, Paul is saying, I can see the fact that you're not spiritually minded and the fact that there's so much worldly attitudes and so many worldly things that are still involved in your work together, your relationships together, in your attitude toward one another. So the idea again is we need to become more spiritually minded because we are spiritual beings in the most comprehensive sense. Now, we can choose what to do with that, right? Because were the Corinthians at this time living up to that reality? But I think it's significant, right? That the idea that we are temples of the Spirit, I think primarily, is meant to motivate us to take action. Because Paul isn't saying, well, Corinthians, you're a mess. So, I mean, you were temples way back when, when I was among you, but wow, I don't know what happened now. Clearly, you're no longer temples of the Spirit and, and God has abandoned you and you, you no longer have any fellowship with them. Now, the idea is, because of who they are, they need to live up to that reality. So we need to become spiritually minded. So that can seem really ambiguous, right? Like, what does it mean to be spiritually minded? Um, and this is something that challenges me because I can see that I need to really work on growing in what it means to be spiritually minded. We're going to go to one more place in chapter 1 to unpack this a little bit more. But I think fundamentally we can understand that it is not being worldly minded, right? I think it's a great shame if me and anyone else who claims the name of God, if really there's no difference between us and the people around us except we believe different things intellectually about the Bible. And we go somewhere where other people don't go on Wednesday nights and Sundays. If that's the only thing that distinguishes us compared to the people around us, we are probably not spiritually minded people. Because again, what Paul is saying is comprehensively, meaning in every way, inner and outer, we are made to be spiritual beings. And so our attitude, the way that we think about the world, the way that we think about, the, about people, needs to be fundamentally rebuilt, starting from the inside, to become spiritual in and out. Now, to unpack this a little further in chapter 1, 18 through 25, I think Paul starts the letter kind of getting to the core of what it means to be spiritually minded when he references the nature of the gospel and even his own example when he was among them. Chapter 1, 18 through 25. And we'll get to what's on the board here after reading this, verse 18 through 25. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified 
to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So what is the greatest, clearest banner of what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to be a temple of the Spirit, to have a spiritually minded attitude? It's the cross. And I know it can sound like really basic, like we need to think in a cross-centered way or talk more about the cross. But I think what we need to understand is the cross can't just be something that we believe. It can't just be a thing that happened in history and, yeah, I mean, that saved me from my sins, Jesus being willing to do that. It must become the central defining characteristic of all that I am. And I need to find ways to trace my intentions back to the cross. That my language should be cross-centered language. The way that I talk should reflect the cross. The way that I think while I'm at work, the way that I think while I'm among brethren, the way that, I'm th- that, the way that I think while among people of the world should be a reflection of the reality of the cross. And you see that in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, um, verses 1 through 5. This is what Paul urged them to remember. Again, that what the cross was to him and what it meant to be spiritually minded wasn't just an intangible thing when he was among them. It was demonstrated to them. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. I th- look, I think it can be really easy here when he talks about the power of God, while he was among them, he was showing them the spirit and the power to think like, oh, well, I mean, apostles could do miracles. So maybe what he's talking about there is Paul showed them miraculous abilities while he was among them and there they showed, he showed them the power of God. But look at verse 18 again. What is he referenced to being the power of God? And if you look at verse 24, what does he reference there being the power of God in the context of the argument he's making? The idea is, to Paul, the cross was not just something he believed as information. It had dramatically changed Paul and it had become the central characteristic of all that he was. And he had become a person impossible to become if not for the cross being the foundation of all that he was. So how should the Spirit, being made a temple of the Spirit, affect our attitude? It should convict us and change us. It should humble us. And just like what Paul references in verse 3, that we not seek greatness in the world or superiority in the world, but recognize that the cross is a message of God's strength being proclaimed through our weakness. All right, back to chapter 3, verse 18 through 23. So the way that he continues his arguments, I think, continues to be relevant with what it means to be a temple of the Spirit. And here I think we need to understand that it more shapes our worldview. So let's read 18 through 23. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish, 
so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasoning of the wise that they are useless. So then let no one boast in men for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you. You belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. So fundamentally, how should our worldview be shaped by having the spirit, being a temple of the spirit? 18 through 20, I think, starts us understanding the value of conviction. The Corinthians were going to need to be ready to change. And Paul was going to write to them things that were meant to convict them and cut to the heart. And so if we're going to reflect an attitude that is consistent with the reality that we are temples of God's Holy Spirit, then we need to be ready to change, to hear God's word and to listen, not to assert what is right, but to listen to what is right and to conform ourselves to that. Verse 19 I don't know if you know who um, this quote is from. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And it may surprise you, it's Eliphaz from the book of Job. And Eliphaz said some true things. But if you remember the book of Job, like all of his friends said a lot of foolish things, right? So little did he know he was actually going to be caught in his own craftiness and rebuked, be rebuked by God, right? And so Eliphaz in the book of Job, there's an irony where he acknowledged that You know, right information, yeah, God catches the wise in his craftiness, but little did he know he was that guy that needed to humble himself. Not Job, but Eliphaz, right? So we have to be ready to humble ourselves. But I think more some encouraging things. In verse 21 through 23, you know, this idea that don't boast in men, all things ultimately belong to you. If God has given us his spirit, then nobody can give you more than what God has already given you. Nobody. Nobody can give you more wealth. Nobody can give you a higher position. Nobody can give you more support. And all of those things that draw us into the world or into industry or whatever, nobody can give you more than what God has already given you. You look at verse 22. He's not speaking this in the future tense. That I mean, if you work things out to the end, you know, God in the resurrection will give all things to you. It's like, look, if you're a child of God, you are a joint heir of Jesus. And so all things belong to you, right? So nobody can give you more than what God has given you. And I think God has created us, in a sense, to seek validation. Like, I think our culture shows this really, really well. I mean, like, if there's even a poster on a wall that says, you are enough, It's like, oh, thank you, you know? It's like nobody, it's just a poster, right? Or you see some, like, picture on the internet randomly on Facebook that someone shared that says, like, again, like, you are enough or you're doing good. You know, people will share that and be like, wow, finally, someone said it, right? It's like we seek validation. We want somebody to just tell us it's enough or I'm proud of you or you're doing well. And again, we, I think, just take for granted that if God has made us temples of his spirit, the idea is nobody, not Paul or Apollos or any of these people, nobody can give you the kind of validation that God has already given you. And so those things we seek from people that draw us, again, to admire people or to want to be friends with people or to be in groups of people where they validate our interests or hobbies or whatever, nobody can compare to the validation that God has already given us. And what does it mean to be a temple of his spirit? 
There's also no identity more valuable than the identity we have in Christ. You know, I think we live in a culture where obviously there is a great identity crisis, right? And where people want to act on the outside in a way that's consistent with an identity they perceive on the inside. And there is an opposite truth for us. Like, obviously, we're not acting on that in an ungodly sense. But, I mean, there is a sense where there is an invisible reality to who we are that is something we have to understand first within ourselves. And we should seek to value that identity to the extent that we only want to live in a way that reflects the value of that identity where people can see that is who I truly am, that I truly belong to Jesus. I value the holiness of who God is and my relationship with his holiness. So that brings us to the second uh, section we're going to look at in chapter 6 with the spirit and our body. And this idea of valuing the holiness of who we are because of what God has done for us. So 19 and 20, again, are the specific statements about the fact that we are temples of the Spirit of God. But just like the scripture reading, we're going to start back in verse 9. And again, the idea here is that it's not just our attitude that should be dramatically changed by the fact that we are temples of the Spirit, but it's how we view our body and what we do with our body. Chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Really, this is the application that I think is very frequently made with the fact that God's spirit has been given to us. Um, If you want to mark in your notes, and you maybe have it as like a reference in your Bible, 1 Thessalonians 4 makes the same point. So he says, like, we need to learn to possess our bodies in sanctification and honor to flee from and abstain from sexual immorality. He who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives his spirit to you. And again, this same point is made here. And the, the summary of the idea is this. If I am a temple of the spirit, then my body belongs to the Lord to be used for his glory, not for sexual sin. I think he starts the point here in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, 
with this work that was accomplished to redeem me. You notice in verse 11, he doesn't just say, and you were forgiven of your sins, right? You remember last week with the lesson in the book of Numbers, and I know not everybody was here for that, but the idea of the book of Numbers in chapter 19 is there's a law that deals with a person's relationship to the place where God's presence is, the tabernacle, and if they touched a dead body, they were unclean for seven days and had to go outside of the camp, and they had to wash in a very special way on the third and seventh day, and if they didn't, then they were cut off from Israel and they defiled the sanctuary of God. And one of the points I made is God was teaching the people to think about their relationship with him in real terms. And so it's not just that this was just some ceremony or tradition, but it was to teach them a very tangible lesson that the way that your decisions affect your relationship with God is very real. And the work that God has to do to bring you into his presence is a very real work. And so in verse 11, when he says, you are washed, sanctified, justified, this is a very real work that God did that was extraordinarily expensive. And we need to be careful to understand and value that work. So a way I want to illustrate this, um, and this will require some qualifying, Um, When I went to college, I went to a college in Texas for one year, and I think it was about $40,000 of debt for that one single year I did in Dallas, which I didn't graduate from college. That was kind of like a massive waste of money. Um, But, you know, it's like when I was looking at the college, it's like whatever, whatever it costs, I'll just get a loan and I'll go there. And, you know, as long as I get my education, what does it matter anyway? So then once I started paying the loan and the interest started going up, And it became really difficult to pay that amount and how long it took. Well, now it is a lot more real, right? So the way that relates to this isn't that like, you know, we're not forgiven, we're paying off, you know, our debt continuously to God. But the idea is this thing that didn't seem real, when I actually started dealing with it more directly, all of a sudden now it was a lot more important to me. The value of it was a lot more real. And so in that first point about our attitude, when we really take seriously the cross, that it's, again, not just an informational thing, a fact that I believe, but I'm letting the cross define how I see people, how I see the world around me, the convictions that I'm forming in my heart, the way that I'm interacting with people at work, in the world, my closeness with the brethren, the nature of my relationship with the brethren, when I let those things become more real in my attitude, this work that's being described no longer just becomes some fictional make-believe thing, but the value of what it is begins to take greater form. So we need to be more careful to value this work and not just read these concepts and breeze over them. And in verse 12 through 18, again, something that is easy, I think, to read over and not really comprehend the degree of reality that's assigned to it, Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Or verse 17, the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. How much do you think about that? That when you are saved from your sins, it's not just that you are rescued from God's wrath and then sent on your way, but you entered into a very real covenant with God in the closest possible one-on-one relational sense. 
That when you are redeemed by the blood of Jesus, when you are baptized for the remission of your sins, it's not just that you are washed, not just that you are sanctified and justified, but that was needed to accomplish unity with Christ, to become one with him. Does that matter? Should that impact us? Should that affect our view of sin and sexual sin? So again, just to portray some of the points that are made that are more tangible, um, how we view our relationship with Jesus ought to directly impact how we respond to sin. So we'll look at some of these things more specifically in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So I know that sounds like a little bit of like a tongue twister riddle type thing. It almost seems like he's quoting the Corinthians and something that they were saying to justify sexual sin. It seems similar to verse 13. Food is for the stomach. Stomach is for the food. It's like, okay, we crave eating, but craving sex doesn't justify sexual sin the way craving food means eat food, right? So back to verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. You know, it shows that we're not thinking in a spiritually centered way where we'll only take God's word seriously and seek wisdom if it's like a salvation issue, you know? Where it's like, I'm not really seeking what's most profitable for my faith. I'm not necessarily trying to become spiritually minded. I'm just trying to, you know, get by and just do the things that are sufficient or adequate. That pretty well shows that somebody is entirely, you know, in their attitude, not thinking in a spiritually centered way. Because the way that Paul throughout Corinthians is encouraging them to think fundamentally with their attitude first, don't just seek what's adequate. Seek what glorifies God the most. Seek what love, the love of Christ, would require. Walk in the example left for you in the Apostle Paul, right? And so this should affect my will. Are the decisions I'm making furthering God's work to help me think in spiritual ways or is it contradicting that work? Do I have addictions? Are there things that I am dependent on for comfort or for peace? Like habits that I have that are addictive in their nature that have mastery over me and my will when really only God, since I belong to him, only God has the right to have mastery of my will? So this should affect, in an intimate way, analyzing my will, my habits, because again, being filled with the Spirit is not just a thing that affects a part of my life on the outside or where I go a couple of times a week, but fundamentally and comprehensively who I am um, from the inside first. It should have a profound impact on the view of my body and the value of my body. So if you look at verse 14, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. And verse 20, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. What is the purpose of your bodily existence? Is it just to do whatever you want, have as much fun as you can? Or is it that your body belongs to God and you exist bodily for his glory? I think the point of verse 14 is not just that we should be glorifying God in our body, but that God has given us a body 
to raise it from the dead and to preserve it in a condition appropriate for resurrection. And so if we're committing sexual sin unrepentantly and involving ourselves in those things without any conviction or openness or honesty, our bodies are not fit for resurrection. Our bodies are not joined with the Lord now, and so they will certainly not be joined to the Lord later, right? So the arguments that Paul makes here, it's not an accident that he's bringing these things up to give the greatest possible force for us to have a motivation to abstain from immorality and flee from it. So this ought to have a profound impact on my view of sexual immorality. So especially in relation to verse 18 and 19, when he brings up flee immorality, Every other sin is outside of the body, but the man who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. It's in that context that he brings up verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You think about in the Old Testament time, when there was an actual building temple, right? There was a priest who would go inside of it. Can you imagine on the Day of Atonement, One day a year, it's the day where all Israel would be redeemed from their sins, whatever. Imagine instead of going in with the blood that God called for, he went in with the prostitute and committed sexual immorality in the most holy place in the tabernacle. And that's the idea he's conveying here is if we are temples of God, then we are more holy than than the most holy place that existed in the Old Testament. And if that place was to be held in some reverence because of what it was, then who we are ought to be held in even greater reverence. And if we are one with the Lord, it's not that sexual immorality is less consequential now because of all that God has done for us in his mercy. It's that it is more consequential Because God has done more for us to make us more holy and given us even greater grace. And so the fact that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, one of the most important applications of this is it should motivate us to flee immorality and to abstain from sexual sin. And that would include pornography, staring, fantasizing. You know, these things, even if a person on the outside it's not able to see what I'm doing if I'm staring and fantasizing just in my mind. Again, if I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit, then where my thoughts are dwelling, what I'm doing with my heart, even in privacy to no one else's awareness, that matters to God, right? So, and it's not that, you know, this is to push us into secrecy and to make someone who may be struggling with these things, you know, afraid to share those things. Um, The best thing that we can do with overcoming these things is to be open with it and seek help and counsel from brethren who may be older than us or more wise than us. So the idea, again, isn't to push us into a secret of shame because we can overcome and we must overcome and we need to take whatever radical measure is necessary to overcome because God has given us all of the tools that we need not only to motivate us to take sin more seriously, but to equip us to overcome sin. And that's the exhortation he's giving to the Corinthians here. He's bringing sins they're struggling with and involved in right out into the open, saying like, look, this is how it is, but here are all the reasons why this cannot be a part of your lives, a 
part of where you are in your relationship with God and God has given you everything you need to overcome these things and to flee from these things, right? So ultimately, again, what does it mean that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Doesn't mean that, you know, I'm going to have random seizures of passion and emotion and flail around and speak in different languages. That's, That's not what it means doesn't mean that I need to watch my weight or, you know, that if I'm not eating right, that I'm not taking care of my temple. It's not what it means. But it does mean that I need to have an attitude that is spiritually minded and centered on the cross. It does mean that I need to take sin more seriously and that I need to be holy. And especially with sexual sin, I need to take those things as seriously as I can to be as far away as I can be from giving into those temptations and allowing them to enslave me. So that's where we'll end the lesson for this morning. Um, like was said at the end of the spirit in our attitude, for God to offer us his spirit, there's no greater offer he could make. When he says he's made us a temple, there was no building that Israel could possibly make that would be as valuable as the temple was. I've seen estimates that the temple may have been hundreds of billions of dollars or maybe because of how much gold, bronze, and silver was used in the artistry, it may have actually cost in modern currency upwards to $1 trillion to actually construct the temple in all its components, right? There's no building Israel could have that could compare with that. I don't think there's any building that exists today that compares with how valuable that building was. The idea is this. There's no greater value we can have than the value that we have to God and his kingdom. And what God is offering is the lives that we're living here that have no meaning without God, lives that are destined for God's wrath, they can be given the highest, most incomprehensible value to God. If as the song, as the song is that we sing, if we just trust and obey, and God will give more than we can fathom and invest more than we can fathom. If there's anything that we can do for you this morning, we'd urge you to bring it forward as we send and sing invitation song.